Section 15 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Criminal Investigation, a Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers, and Lawyers, Volume 3, by Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. Burglary and housebreaking. Entering by the door. Breaking open doors and shutters is extensively practiced. The differences between and the combinations of the methods used are very considerable, so that the subject can only be dealt with quite generally. As a rule, doors are fastened in a more or less complicated manner, and they present two points of attack for the consideration of the thief, namely, the surface and material of the door, and the mode in which it is secured. Attacking the door itself. There are many other modes of breaking open a door than battering it in with the trunk of a tree, a heavy beam, or a crowbar used like a ram. There are numerous ways of opening it without making a noise or attracting attention. The method most like those we have just been considering is to raise up the door by introducing a lever or wedge between the frame and the threshold. One of the parts of the door is bound to yield, the part depending upon its construction, if the force used is only sufficiently great. Either the lock, staple, hinges, or the whole door will give way. No doubt, this cannot be done without noise, and proves the criminal to be either extraordinarily audacious or sufficiently acquainted with the situation to know that the noise will not attract anyone's attention. He is aware that the house is untenanted, or that the residents are too far away from where he is working, or that he knows them to be fearful folk who will not budge in spite of or because of the noise. If the thief cannot raise the whole door in this energetic manner, he attacks a part or parts of it. He chooses the hinges for preference, if they are accessible from outside, that is to say, if the door opens outwards. In towns and populous places, doors hardly ever open outwards, for they are situated on the pavement and would encroach on someone else's ground. But in the country, they open outwards much more frequently than is convenient, and the hinges are in consequence also fixed on the outside. And if these hinges are not fixed as shown in figure 135, they may be removed almost noiselessly by the first blockhead who comes along. To fix them properly, it is necessary that the arm of the hinge be fixed to the doorpost at point A, while the support of the hinge is strongly bolted at B by a screw passing right through the doorpost from one side to the other. If the thief cannot succeed in taking off the hinges, he will attack the wood of the door or shutter, and in this connection the manner in which doors are made, i.e. with panels, greatly helps him. Such doors have certainly their advantages. They look well, and there is little probability that the wood of which they are made will split or decay, but, on the other hand, they seem to be constructed for the very purpose of housebreaking. They offer no serious resistance. Their manner of construction excludes any chance of solidity. They are made by slipping the panels, 
the edges of which are thinned down into grooves in the four boards which form the frame. If, then, we take a section of the door from E to E, figure 137, we can see that all panel doors are particularly thin between the frame and the panel itself, i.e. at O, O. We can all notice this on our own doors. It may be seen that the wood can be easily pierced at O with a knife, the blade of which is inserted in the direction of the grain of the wood. The two opposite sides of the panel can then be easily cut, slitting the wood gently. It is naturally more difficult to slit it against the grain, since a saw cannot be used for fear of the noise. A gimlet is here resorted to, and little holes pierced side by side in the wood, the spaces between them being subsequently cut away with the knife. In figure 138, lines A, A, and B, B are cut with the knife. Lines A, B, and A, B with the gimlet. Having thus cut round the panel, the thief can remove it and get in through the opening obtained. The weakness of such doors has been frequently noticed, especially in village inns where people have been known to push out, in a drunken quarrel, the panel of a door by mere pressure of the back, a kick or a knock with the head. At other times, the thief attacks the cross bolts, which are fixed in various ways, and, all things considered, render excellent service. Naturally, they are useless unless the door itself is a good one. A door furnished with a cross bolt cannot be lifted from its hinges or opened by a master key, but if its construction be light, it will offer no more resistance to either a gimlet or a knife than any door without bolts at all. In addition, the bolt must be fixed securely, not so that it may be pushed from one side to the other. Let us consider one of these systems of shutting up doors or windows. In the country, the door is provided with a wooden bar of more or less strength which generally rests in a lateral hole in the wall and is slipped through two rings or guides and into a hole in the wall opposite the first-mentioned wall. For window shutters, the fastening is made with a crossbar, which turns on a nail strongly driven in and hangs in a vertical position during the daytime. In India, this method is also commonly used for doors. To fasten the shutter or door, the bar is turned round the nail and fitted into a staple or hook in the opposite wall. To be of any use, it is not sufficient for the door or shutter to be of solid construction. The bolt must also be well fixed. If not, all that is necessary to render the bolt quite useless is to make a small hole in the door. This hole must, of course, be made in the proper place and be a little larger than the lever that is to be used. It should be pierced just behind the bolt, and the lever, such as a thin bar of iron with a pointed end, should be placed with its arm or handle away from and its point towards the latch edge of the door. The point of the lever is then dug into the bar or bolt and levered backwards and forwards, thus pushing the bar back little by little. No doubt it only moves a fraction of an inch at a time, but if the operation is kept up, the bar will be withdrawn and leave the door free to open. The same method is used for the bolt or bar which turns on a pivot. 
the hole is again made exactly behind the bar and the same lever used but instead of pushing the bar horizontally a circular and upward movement is employed till it comes out of the staple or hook this process is of course impossible where the bar is fixed by some means or other as example by a pin passed through the hook or staple above the bolt and terminating in a hole in the door frame all these methods are generally interesting from the point of view of the police as regards the investigating officer they are very important for whenever a breaking in has been effected in this way he may presume that the thief has been in the locality before and ascertained that there was a bolt how it was fixed and whether or not it was furnished with a safety catch etc a thief who does not know all this is also ignorant of the method of making the hole and of how to use it when made of course we do not mean to say that he would have to take measurements of the place where the bolt is fixed it is enough for him to look for certain indications which can be seen both inside and out and to which he will direct his attention suppose he notices for instance that the bolt of the door is about a finger's breadth above the keyhole he has but to draw a horizontal line to fix the whole position of the bolt or at the window he may remark the pivot nail which in all probability runs right through the bar from back to front and ought consequently to be seen from outside but the bolt when shut is horizontal and thus it is easy to find its position throughout its whole length in many cases as when the bolts are small iron ones or the thief decides to attack the lock or some reason or other renders it convenient to insert the hand inside the door a larger opening has to be made the method mentioned above for removing a door panel is generally followed but the gimlet holes will be made in a circle and then joined up with the aid of a thin knife thus obtaining a continuous circular section which will come away and allow a hand or piece of bent wire or other instrument to be inserted in figure 139 the holes are shown drilled and the joining lines cut that locks may be opened bolts withdrawn and safety catches manipulated in this way may be readily understood but what often appear incomprehensible are the smallness of the hole and the distance from it at which the thief can operate inside it seems all the more remarkable when we remember that he can see nothing of the field of operations from outside and cannot trust to his sense of touch as it is with a wire and not with his hands that he works openings made with a gimlet or drill in this way furnish the investigating officer in every case with rich material for deduction the place itself where the hole is made permits him to form an idea as to what the thief knew concerning the interior arrangement of the door upon examining this opening a conclusion can be formed either that the thief had absolutely no knowledge of the interior aspect of the door or that he had an approximate idea of it founded upon a rapid observation or that he had an exact and complete knowledge of the situation such as only an old servant friend or even as has happened former occupier of the house must have had if the opening does not appear a success 
the question must be asked what reason the thief could have had for making it in that way rather than in some other manner. The examination of this question, based as it is upon all the circumstances, however small, gives at times most interesting results, for it may be discovered, for example, that the accused must have seen the inside of the door, but only from a very special point of view, which has given him a false idea. Certain researches, if properly conducted, may perhaps be able to put us on the track of persons who must necessarily have considered the situation from that point of view. Finally, the impression may be obtained from this inspection that the accused's only knowledge comes from outside sources, such as descriptions and rough sketches, and he has thus obtained a false idea of the state of things, a discovery which will give the investigating officer a fresh point of departure for new investigations. In such cases, it is, above all, important to have the scene of offense attentively examined by experts, for the work of the thief will nearly always present some characteristic signs. It may perhaps be established what kind of instruments have been used by the thief, whether the criminal is a workman of a special class, what trade he belongs to, whether he had enough time for his work, whether he used a light, whether he employed considerable force, whether he proceeded with skill or originality, and knew how to profit by certain advantages, as, for example, to avoid nails or other iron parts. In short, it will perhaps be possible to discover a certain number of particular circumstances capable of characterizing the thief and bringing about his subsequent arrest. This result appears to be more unreal than it is, in fact, for it must not be forgotten that these are not isolated points which have been determined, but are very frequently corroborated by other determined points, noticed by some person or other who has been called in to give information, and thus become more definite in form. Care must, of course, be taken not to heedlessly express any opinion which has been formed, or which one may have thought it possible to form, nor to communicate it on the spot to people present, who will perhaps believe themselves obliged to agree with Mr. Investigating Officer, and immediately start about making a number of more or less inexact observations solely in order to be agreeable. We all know how often we have been led into error by such people, animated by the best intentions in the world, but we also know that if in such a case we observe the state of the locality with attention, take the advice of experts, and hold ourselves in reserve before communicating to the witnesses the results acquired, if we then gather with care the opinions of these latter, and if we combine the information thus obtained, success can hardly be missed. We may here cite a case where the thief had made such an opening as we have been discussing. The case is interesting from more than one point of view, and at the same time, the opening made was a larger one than the author ever met with before. It was not, however, made in the door. A coachman of the name of C.R., after many long years of work, had saved a fairly round sum and hoped to live quietly upon it in his old age. He was a bachelor of a distrustful nature, and his distrust increased when he learnt that, about the same time as he was retiring from his business, one of his old fellow-coachmen 
had just been the victim of a mysterious theft and had been despoiled of all his fortune. He rented on the downstairs floor a room which had only one door. He got the two windows fitted with bars and shutters and the door with all kinds of bolts and locks. He bought a revolver and at last thought he was safe. As for his money, he placed it in the savings bank. In the daytime, he carried his bank book in the pocket of his coat, and at night, he placed his coat beside his bed, still leaving the book in the pocket. Now, C.R. was still in possession of an old carriage, a relic of his old business, stabled in the same house in which he lived. One fine morning, he was awakened by an individual who said that he had come to see the carriage with a view to purchase. Avaricious by nature, C.R. hurried out to show the carriage to the unknown purchaser, and finally both repaired to a neighboring job master to borrow a couple of horses to be attached to the old carriage, for the purchaser insisted upon trying it. C.R. and the purchaser drove about during the best part of the morning, the latter was satisfied and promised to return in the afternoon with his money to pay for the carriage and horses to take it away. But hardly had he gone off than C.R. discovered that instead of his savings bank book, his pocket contained another one similar to his own, but which showed a balance of only a single golden. He went off to the savings bank, where he learnt that the whole of his deposit had been withdrawn about an hour before by some unknown person. Naturally, the buyer of the carriage did not turn up in the afternoon, and there was no manner of doubt that his story of a purchase and the trying of the carriage was only a feint for the purpose of keeping C.R. occupied and hindering him from discovering the loss of his bank book, and at the same time giving the confederate of the purchaser the necessary interval. At the outset, it was supposed to be a case of pocket-picking, skillfully carried out by the purchaser himself, who, it was supposed, must have removed the book from C.R.'s pocket during the examination of the carriage or during the trial drive, and then skillfully slipped or thrown it to a confederate. But an attentive examination of C.R.'s room gave other results. Under and towards the back of his bed, and, in consequence, invisible even to a person at some distance from the bed, a nearly square hole of fairly large size, having a diameter of about 16 inches, had been made in the floor. Following the process above indicated, a large number of little holes had been bored beside one another and then joined up with a knife, so that two floorboards were each found to be cut in two places rendering their removal perfectly easy. The floor consisted of parallel beams about one yard distant from one another, upon which were fixed strong planks which formed the floor of the room as well as the ceiling of the basement. Figure 140 represents the ceiling seen from below. Underneath was a cellar used for storing vegetables, which some unknown woman had hired under a false name about two weeks before the theft, and where she had deposited some vegetables of practically no value. The thief must have hidden on several occasions in the cellar, which was all the more easy as there were never many people in the courtyard, and then during the daytime, 
when he heard C.R. go out, have started making the holes. He doubtless worked noiselessly and cautiously, for the room next to C.R.'s was occupied by a tailor who was at home all day. When the hole was made, the thief slipped one evening under C.R.'s bed, knowing him to be sound asleep, and took a hold of his coat and changed the bank book in the pocket for another one. The false book was to serve to tranquilize C.R. in case he looked to see whether his treasure was still in the pocket of his coat. As regards this point, the thief's speculations were correct. He had then withdrawn in the same way, and had taken the precaution of rendering the perforated place as difficult as possible to recognize. He had, indeed, placed a screw in the lower part of each piece of wood, the screw carrying a large fixed ring serving as a handle to open or shut the trap, and before replacing the two pieces of wood, after having committed the theft, he had smeared their edges with wet clay, which, on being pressed, when the section was replaced, squeezed out and hid the cut surface. The thief hoped in this way that if by chance they looked under the bed, where it was fairly dark, the clay would be taken for dust, and the manner in which the theft had been carried out would not be discovered. The lower part of the section was also easy to hide, for there it was only necessary to pass the finger over the clay which was squeezed out in order to make believe that there was only a dirt stain there. As the description of the woman who had hired the cellar was known, as well as that of the self-styled purchaser of the carriage, the thief was discovered, and in the end confessed to having committed the crime in the circumstances indicated. What is still more interesting as regards this theft from a psychological point of view is that the thief pretended that he had buried the money. On several occasions he was on the point of indicating the place where it was buried, but yet never did so. He died in prison, and this large sum of money, 16,900 florins, was probably lost in the ground. End of section 15. Recording by Linda Johnson.